You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Basically, part two of the last part episode, two. as Aaron and I get together again and talk about all the Blu-rays and DVDs, with a uh, starting off with a strong uh, focus on superhero stuff, and then moving into horror. That's kind of what this uh, what this episode is going to be here. Yep. And uh, we are, of course, brought to you by Oscar Blues Brewing Company, which has brew pub locations in Austin, North Carolina, and two in Colorado. Right now, I am drinking their IPA. Of which they actually make a lot of IPAs. They have several different ones, but this one is just called Oscar Blues IPA, and it's pretty tasty. What are you drinking? You know, I had a the ch- old chub, the old chub, Scotch ale, yeah, and then the pills. And because I have a forty-five minute drive home, I am now not drinking. <laughs> but I think the upshot of this is a: be responsible if you're drinking yes. alcohol, and b. Oscar Blues makes an awful lot and a variety of really tasty, good I beers. always recommend the Scotch Ale. It really works for me, although, yes, it is strong. They are the first brew pub to put their uh, – the, the first – I'm sorry, the first uh, craft brew to put their beer in a can with Dale's Pale Ale, which is uh, probably their best seller, best known beer at the very least. But they have so many great flavors, a lot of which you can only get at the brew pub, which they also sell sodas, homemade sodas, which are really, really good. They have a black cherry vanilla that blew the top of my head off. God, that so sounds good. so good. Oh, my God. It's so good. Like, it's just like fresh on draft. Like, and you're just well, like, one of oh. the things that I have appreciated as I've gotten older in life really good is sodas. fruity beers and ciders. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I like all that cool shit. Give me the fruity one. That's awesome. Sometimes I am in genuinely in the mood like to go and down the IPA route. Like, I get in the IPA modes, and I'm like, oh. Although I do admit I prefer the fruit IPAs to anything else. But even so, they're still really hoppy. But generally, I tend to agree with you. I don't want something that's tasteless. I want something that's mellow and flavorful. Yeah. But, but like, introduces new things you don't necessarily yeah, expect yeah. in a beer. A new experience. Oh, just Thrillist had a thing the other day where they were talking about the best beers for non-beer drinkers. And I, like, wrote everything down because they all sounded amazing. There was one that was a Dreamsicle IPA. <laughs> I know, right? I was like... That sounds dangerous. That sounds so good. <laughs> it's, like, basically orange cream IPA. I was like, fucking hey, give that shit to me. But they have stuff like that at Oscar Blues. They make one called Fugly, which is a Japanese fruit IPA that is so good. Good. Oh my God, it's so tasty. And they they're uh, they make a chocolate porter that's really good. And oh my God, they they make a lot of good beer. So you should check those guys out because they're our supporter. Also, um, become a subscriber. That's how we are able to do this site at all. We can't do it without subscribers. Seriously, if you're listening to this, seriously think about it. There's like the tiers they fit your your financial profile to the point where you won't even notice, but we will notice because it makes a difference. At two or five or ten or twenty five dollars a month, there's one that suits you. You just set up the, the, the payments and then you never have to think about it again, except for the fact that by doing it, you get to go into the forums and get that much more bonus content that we do on the site. I've been I've at a point where I no longer think of it as I'm paying for this one service. I think of it as I like the and this is back before I even was an active participant, 
I like this site. I like what you guys do. It's a place where I get my movie fix. So I crowdfund. You know, like it's to me no different than Patreon or Kickstarter or any of Indeed, those. I, I myself support other podcasts that I listen to a lot yeah. w- with it. Like I, I, I pay for Harmontown because it's one of my favorite sites. I'm like, yeah, I give them money because I'm like, you guys are great. I'm actually thinking about giving money to uh, Disgraceland right now, which is another one of my new favorite ones, which does sort of like the weirdest, most fucked up stories in the history of of music. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a fun one to listen to. Uh, we could do a whole podcast on other podcasts, but those aren't on the one of us dot network network. So you know, pay for this one. Anyway, without that being said, let's get getting all that out of the way. Let's just go into the actual reviews of these home releases that we some of which we love so much, others not so much. I feel like we got mixed feelings about this first DC animated universe sort of spinoff. But not. Well, it's called Freedom Fighters The Ray. And ostensibly, it's the first animated full length, like full feature that ties into the actual CW shows, right? But it actively breaks the rules of continuity of that in a way that I'm like, what are you guys yeah, doing? So, so basically, it's about that character who shows up in the. the- Ray. Earth X, Earth X, Crisis on Earth X, Earth X crossover from the Berlanti verse recently. The Ray, who in that show he acknowledges that he was from uh, Earth One and was over there trying to help. And so this is the story of how he got to Earth One. Now I, that's an important distinction because I went into this thinking that this was an Earth X only story, right? And very quickly the the ray from that world ends up in earth one meeting his alternate and is responsible for that character getting his powers. Yeah. And And so voice here by, by uh, Russell Tovey, who, who is uh, obviously playing both, alternate versions. And as we haven't said to people listening to this, Earth X is a world where the Nazis won the world war, where most the A-list superheroes are all Nazi superheroes all Nazis. like uh, uh, that are ones that you know from the CW-verse, which is Supergirl, The Flash, the Arrow, Arrow the things like that. They're all villains. But, but the C-list heroes are all like fighting the revolution versus them, including the Ray, which, like I said, in the, in that crisis on Earth X ends up being a big player in that. In fact, I believe he's in a relationship with the alternate version of Captain Cold, which now in the CW version verse, the, the, the villainous version is dead, although he ended up giving a noble sacrifice, became a hero it's, in I, the I, end. I, I- and the now the only version that exists is this Earth X version, who is gay in a relationship with the Ray, and is so good that it actually like almost is a little cloying. So oh, good. I, I, <laughs> and and I'm going to semi spoil what this movie is about. With this, I thought that the the Captain Cold was in a relationship with the. The version of the Ray from Earth One, right. not the version of the Ray from Earth X. Yeah, but the version of the Ray from Earth X is dead. Yeah, yeah. The version of the Ray from Earth One is the version of the Ray from Earth X now. Because anyway, so the Earth X one came to Earth One, died, gave his powers to Earth One Ray, human, who became their new Ray, and then realized that the more important fight was on Earth X, and so he had to do there. And this is basically that story. Well, but uh, the, of him, how all that happened. You've talked about the fact that. The Ray is gay, which we mentioned because it is actually a major part of this movie. Absolutely. So, so this is the first time I can remember in 
all of DC's animated universe that we've had an actual coming out story. Yes. Because uh, the Ray is, it's like Simon and love Simon. He's in a relatively comfortable life. He is a gay man. He has accepted this within himself, but he has not come out to his parents. And coming to terms with both his identity as a superhero and also his identity as a gay man and being honest with those in his life about it is a major plot point in the story. And I thought it was handled really well. I couldn't they agree more. Good job of showing those fears, showing that life. I have a friend who is probably older than this character is, but let's call it roughly comparable age, who is a bisexual who has never come out to his parents. I'm clearly not going to say who it is here, but I saw a lot of my friend in this character and the the reasons he gave for not coming out and where he put himself emotionally. I've seen this in my friend. And so like, it was nice to see an honest interpretation of that. I, I like that they, the thing, like even though he gets along great with both his parents, they're kind of conservative and old school, yeah. you know? I mean, they don't portray them as Fox News viewers or something, but they're like, you can see why he's like, no matter my, what my relationship is with them, I'm so terrified they're going to judge and dislike me and cast me out of their lives if I tell them that I'm gay. And they handle all of that so maturely and intelligently that yeah. I can't believe I'm watching a DC animated universe uh, film. Like, it, it, they even... From the parents' point of view, as they go through the story, too, that you're right. They're never jerks, but they're also clearly struggling with it. They toe that line very well in showing what I imagine would be a very intense experience for someone going through it, but never being... Hey, I hate you. Get the hell out of my life. Sure. Never show up. They never go through the cliche. Yeah. Yeah. You know, aside from that, which we both agree we like, I, I like the Ray as a power based guy, his light based powers, which seem to be like they're doing a good job of sort of introducing what they are by him discovering what they are as, as it goes along going. I can do a lot more shit than I thought I could originally. Yeah. Like him more one after another going, this is so cool. He even seems almost to discover some things that the original Ray didn't know. Yes. Uh, he becomes, he seems like all, arguably he becomes more of a badass than yeah. the original guy. Uh, and I like, you know, the, I really like that crisis on earth X evil, Supergirl, evil arrow, all that stuff. But it doesn't make any sense because if they sell this as a continuation or a prequel to those shows and that, that miniseries, which has them meet the Ray for the first time. Yeah. In the live action version, but yet they meet him in this earlier on. So it doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Why would yeah. you not just not it's, do that? It's such a terrible idea because it, actively works against the film. Yeah. Because where does though, it take place? Even though like they they sort of give an excuse why some of the other characters wouldn't know he was on Earth X and that almost works. But they there's no reason why the Flash and the Arrow who actively train the Ray. Like they work with him like the arrow works with all of his and, and it's a cool four. sequence in this film, except it doesn't make any sense yeah, out like, of the continuity. It, 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 why would they not know him? Yeah, and uh, just it, it it's Darth it Vader and RTD two all over again. <laughs> it ruins the continuity, and so I spent the entire last half of the movie going, 
wait, like, I thought they didn't know him. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious it, if this is a you sequel. You get or? really confused because you're like, you guys are clearly selling this as a tie-in to the yeah. CW shows, and, and yet you couldn't be bothered? The, the problem with that is that if you remove that confusion, this would really work. Yeah. If they managed to tie it into the continuity of the show. Honestly, if you don't give a fuck... Then I think this is pretty good. Yeah. If you really, really were looking forward to this because of the Crisis on Earth X live action stuff, you're going to be pissed off about it. Well, it, 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 it's just, yeah, it's bad. It's yeah. poorly done, that aspect of it. And, once again, and it sucks that it has such a big impact on your enjoyment of the actual movie. And it's a shame because, like I said, they do the, the like discussion on homosexuality in this world so well yeah. that it feels like they should have given this more... It feels like this is an afterthought. And, in fact, not just for that because DC Animated Universe films generally are packed with some pretty cool extra features. And this, this has almost nothing. Yeah, there's like a, a, a minute and a half or so of an interview with the voice actor uh, who plays the Ray here, and that's about it. It's like, you really don't want to... Give us a little background thing about the history of the Ray, who is like a, who is definitely a, a, a lesser known character, but has had an interesting run in the comics. So like that's the stuff I most look forward to with bonus features on animated superhero films. Like I want the thing that tells us about who he was in the comics, what happened in the comics, who created him in the comics. None of that shit is here. Well, and I just. It seems so counterproductive. It's I feel like it's uh, Ready Player One, where so much of what that movie was about was oriented towards this one audience. Like, this this is oriented towards people who like the Berlanti shows, but then they actively work to upset that viewer. Uh, Makes no sense. It, but like you said, if you don't care, if you haven't seen the Berlanti mo- the shows, dude, check it out. This is really good. But if you have... At the very least, just acknowledge that this does not make sense in the context of those shows. This is an else world. Uh, so next up is Supergirl season three, and I've been very vocal about saying I think Supergirl is one of the better of the CW TV shows. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I don't think that season three takes a downturn. Season three is a lot of fun. So adapting the Rain storyline from the comic books, which is basically, yes, another Kryptonian we didn't know about who comes to superpowers, but somehow she's connected to Elder Gods or some shit. I don't know. I mean, like, it's a point I'm like, I, it's so tied up in DC lore that I'm like, I don't even know, but who cares? I get the general gist of what's going on here. So there are, there are apocalyptic gods that like are sort of energy forces that can possess people that are Kryptonian that are about ending the world. And one of them possesses a character here who is a friend of Kara Danvers, uh, a supergirl and, and their associated group of friends. Um, but you get a lot of cool stuff in the season, including the Legion of Superheroes. Yes, I was going to mention the Legion of Superheroes. Oh my God. You finally get to see Brainiac, which, oh my God, is not the evil Brainiac. What is it? Brainiac five is the good one. I think. <laughs> I thought six, but hell, I don't know. I can't remember, but it's good Brainiac. It's I'm going like, to call it Brainiac 8, so gets, I can call him the Ocho. We, it can be very confusing for people who don't follow comic books, but the <coughs> Brainiac from our time is evil. But there's lots and lots and lots of Brainiac technology clones out there, and the one in the time of Legion of Superheroes, which is in the distant future, is good. And this is the good one, and yeah. it's and they travel through time a lot, and this is them traveling back through time, and it back it, it interviews again... Um, 
Oh, what is his name? Not Superboy, but I think he was Superboy in the comics. But um, oh, you're talking about her boyfriend? Yeah, from her season two? boyfriend from season two, who was like, "Oh, I can't be on Earth anymore because the atmosphere got Mon-El? filled with lead." Monel, and uh, and I'm allergic to to that because he's not a Kryptonian. He's from neighboring planet, whatever, where they have a lead allergy or something. something. And he's like, well, I got to go. But he goes and he goes into the future. A lot of time has passed. And now he's married to like another super powered person, the Legion of Superheroes, and which is very disappointing. Which to I, I got to say, though, uh, for such an obvious CW drama filled situation. Yeah. They actually handled that plot really well, I thought. Strangely maturely. I well, like it that they showed, like, you keep waiting for it to devolve into soap opera, and it never really does. And then they have adult intelligent conversations about the situation. And so the other thing this show does, and, and so I'm halfway through the season right now, so I feel like I can talk about what half what I've seen, is that the the lesbian relationship from season two ends relatively early on, and they like the actual... With, his, with her sister. Yeah, with her sister. The actual... Like they did with the actual coming out of that character and the formation of that relationship, it's probably the best... You know what I think we need to end our relationship that I've ever seen portrayed on television? It's honest and sincere. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. Amicable. Like, I love the way that Supergirl handles its interpersonal relationships, both on the friend level and on the romantic level. It's the only one of all of them that has that be a major part of the show that never feels forced or awkward or pain. Like, the arrow, oh, good God, the arrow, that's the worst part of that show. It drives me crazy, and the Flash is not that much better. But agreed, Supergirl is just always always it nails it. Nails the fine yeah. line between hey, this is drama porn for ladies, and this is badass superhero action. It's just perfect. Uh, there's a lot of little side stuff here that's good as well. Like they introduced <laughs> John's father, who turns out to still be alive and being held prisoner by the White Martians. And uh, who himself is a green Martian and and it ends up into a story about like dealing with adult dementia, which is really surprising. You're like, wow, that's really what they're going to do. I mean, it's not something you expect on a superhero show, but like a very thoughtful and and like sensitive take on dealing with a with a with a parent who's who's going through the first stages of Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, I was really impressed with what they did with this season overall. I got to ask, like, this is, I, I acknowledge that uh, the, the super silly one, Legends of Tomorrow, yeah. I have more fun with it. It's it's but, the one I enjoy watching the most because it's it's Doctor Who for me. Yeah, it's just, just yeah. way crazy. But I think this is legitimately the best of the CW shows right now. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the best written. Yeah. And I think that, like, I would say it's a hard call whether I like Grant Gustin as The Flash or Melissa Benoist as Supergirl better as a performance. They're both so good at that thing that the DC movies are missing, which is a DC character that's just thoroughly guileless, that's just a real hero that makes you feel like you did when you were a kid, where you're like, it's nice to think that people like this could exist. You know, like superheroes like this, they're real heroes, you know? Here's the way I put it. So Chris and I were talking in between the two recordings about my son and when is is your kid old enough to watch certain things? Like, so far of the CW shows, which I watch them all as I can, this is the one that, as he gets older, as long as it doesn't drop in quality, I'm probably going to be like, dude, check this this out. This is awesome girl power stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. It's it's that show that like is doing the thing that's going to piss off anyone from Comicsgate, but has always been a big part of comics. Sorry, yeah. that's doing it in a live action version much better than anybody else is doing yep. it. Uh, all right, so now it's time to move to horror, which is the rest of the show. Are you ready for this? Yeah. We're going to start off with the film that you were embarrassed to start showing your father <laughs> uh, called The Song of Solomon. It's alternately been called American Guinea Pig. And if that resonates with you at all, you're like, Guinea Pig? Like the Guinea Pig movies? Yup. Same writer-director doing a film that has nothing to do with those films, although they're all disconnected anyway, of uh, where it's an exorcist movie, you yeah. know, but it's going with the guinea pig thing of X fucking stream gore. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the opening <sighs> shot of this movie is a guy ranting religion for two minutes straight before he cuts his own throat, reaches in and pulls his tongue out of the throat cut before he dies. Yep. As you that do. is opening shot. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, it's a woman. It, I think they try and sell it as a teen, but she's clearly like yeah, she's forty in her thirties. Yeah, uh, um, who is already thoroughly possessed by some sort of demon, and her parents are like, "Oh, we need priests to come save her." It's a very exorcist type thing, and they bring the priests up there, and they get like. I mean, this demon is a badass. This demon's just like, nope, I'm fixing the situation real fast. And yeah. this is basically this movie is just a succession of different priests trying to succeed where the others failed. And by failed, I mean die horribly and brutally yeah. uh, in the room with this girl. And it's it's just so violent that I, I was – even me, I was clutching my pearls a bit. So. But it's violent in the level where you're like – this is really well done. Like, like the gore is exceptionally well done gore. I have to admit, I I didn't quite hate this. Yeah, but pretty damn close. Yeah, not your type of movie. But I can also tell you that if you're a gore hound, like if you really enjoy those obscenely goofy, bloody horror films, this is. Right up your alley. And I the kinda, gore is great. The story is okay. I kind of like there was at least an attempt at a story. Okay. A lot of times these type of movies, there's just no attempt That's at a true. story. There but, is an attempt And at this story. one is really genuinely trying to give you like an arc for what's happening. And oddly, clearly paid an awful lot of attention, the writers, to actual Catholic rituals. I mean, I've watched them. It's like... This is they spent a lot of time like making sure the Latin was here and like all the, the, the texts were right and I was just like more time than was necessary, quite yeah, frankly. Like, basically, if you're the kind of person who knows who Lucio Fulci is, yeah. then you're probably gonna like this movie. And if your response to what I just said is who's that eh, and you not, might your thing. not want to see not this. Your thing. Uh, <laughs> if you're uh, like you know, past 25 or so and you don't know who Fulci is, then it's because you it's not your thing. And just uh, to constantly call out how awesome my parents are, my dad watched one of the other horror movies we were we discussed here. He watched Boss the N-Word with me, which that's all I'm saying about that. And he we started this one and we made it as far as the tongue lagging. And it was just like, you know what? No, no. This is not the movie to show my 65-year-old dad. <laughs> I, you know, for me, who like I can be a gorehound, but it depends on the movie. You know, I'm 
I was so impressed with the sheer quality level of the of the actual effects here. I was like, I can't believe this little thing that's clearly low budget film is as good as it is at delivering what it has. Yeah. And not even just that, but kind of creative about it. You're like, wow, that was like a lot yeah. of points you're like that I did not see coming. And, and I gotta admit, there's a thing that they do with a guy's eyes yeah. that I legit had to look away from the screen. Yeah, there's and me too. as much as I don't like gore movies, it really doesn't bother me. There's <laughs> so. Obviously, this guy has a lot of fans because he did not skimp on the extras here either. There is multiple commentaries over an hour behind the scenes. Uh, eight and a half minutes of outtakes, a photo gallery, interviews with actress, uh, the lead actress, writer, director, special effects artist, and the cinematographer. I mean, this is a solid package for people who are into the whole guinea pig thing, which a lot of people are. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to keep this. I'm kind of tempted to because it feels like one of those to put on in the background at a party until someone goes, what the fuck are you watching? God help anyone who, like, shows up on shrooms. <laughs> well, You're going to break someone's soul. I feel like nobody really shows up at shrooms in my house anymore. I but feel like that, that time of my life has passed. <laughs> We're all old enough that that doesn't tend to happen on accident. All right, let's move on to a television show that you and I both watched. You're not quite finished with it yet. but No, the- no. I, I got like two-thirds of the way through. Although, uh, as soon as this is available, or I, either I'm going to track it down myself. You can or- just hold on to the Blu-ray copy and finish watching it. Then right? I will just take them from you and okay. finish it. Cause uh, this is I The Terror, it. which is based on the Dan, Steve- uh, Dan Simmons a 2007 novel that was a huge hit for him. And this is a guy who I've been following his career for a long time. I've read the bulk of the things he's ever read. He's best known probably for his sci-fi opus Hyperion, which I will put up, quite frankly, against any other truly great sci-fi. I put it up against Dune as being that level of quality. It is, when I started getting into audiobooks, it is on the list of every, hey, what's the best sci-fi book out there? That I've pulled up. Oh, yeah. It's his a masterpiece. Always his Hyperion Kansas. And, and he's had a lot of books that are right up there, just so good. And this is one of the few books I never actually read from him, partially because it's fucking gigantic. It's like a thousand some pages. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know. And I was really glad that AMC decided they were going to do part of their new anthology TV series, which will just apparently be called The Terror. But... Like, each season a totally different story that the first one they were going to do is this. He's like, great, now I need to re- read the book. Uh, but this is ba- a fictional, a very fictionalized account of Captain Sir John Franklin's lost expedition to the Arctic between 1845 and 1848, which the idea is they were trying to find the Northwest Passage to go through the Arctic. They failed. <laughs> and this version of the story has where basically a... um an accidental killing of a, of a Inuit, uh, on the ice leads to his soul, at least arguably, depending on your perspective in the book, his soul possessing a giant polar bear that starts gro- taking out the crew. In between all that, the crew has their own issues and subplots and machinations. Um, and just a question of like, are, like, even without a polar bear, are we going to die out here just from freezing to death or running out of supplies? And that's the part that really got me. So this show feels like a – and I mean this as a compliment. This show feels like a historical BBC drama with, with a monster thrown into the mix. Mm-hmm. Because you could cut the monster out of it 
and still get a taut, horrific thriller because the show is very much aware of, yeah, they're fucked from episode one. And it's about how sailors in the mid to late 1800s deal with <clears throat> sailing across the Antarctic. And, oh, yeah, this is how they get their food. And this guy dies from an unknown disease. And we have frostbite issues. And let's try to send people for help. And, and eventually people going cannibalism. Truck for help. And, like, that kind of stuff. But there's also a 30-foot-tall polar bear that is hunting them. I don't know about 30-foot, but... I thought it was big. I mean, my biggest issue with the series is that when they get around to actually showing the polar bear, it's they wanted like the book doesn't apparently enthuse quite so much the idea that it is definitely like the sort of demon bear. It's just a big fucking polar bear that sends meat at a at, in the middle of the winter, but. The show chooses to represent it with a CG face that's sort of muse, uh, clearly supposed to have human characteristics. And it, man, Uncanny Valley, like, See, crazy. And, and all of it, I, I haven't gotten to that part yet. Right. Where I am, it's very much a, you catch a flash of it, or you see it at the distance, kind of mixed in with the snow, so it's not a clear sight. That They do a really good job of teasing it out. Now, I, I say that... But it's also, fair warning, a very slow show. This is a oh, methodical yeah. as hell. It, it really is, for the first half, more of a survival show about dealing with the environment they're in. And then... Very classy. If yeah, you like and then it becomes about uh, the beast that's hunting them as it becomes more of a problem. When you have leads like Siren Hines and Jared Harris, you can pull off that kind of shit. Well, that's the thing. The acting is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, but I will say as well, it's one of those shows I was really grabbed right off the bat. I thought the cinematography was great. The soundtrack was great. Wonderful opening credit sequence, too. Oh, my God. Yeah. So good. Like, performance is great. But there's a point you're like five episodes in, you're like, is anything going to fucking happen in this show? Like, it's really moving at a snail's pace. But then all of a sudden, it suddenly, it picks up and, and accelerates rather rapidly well, towards its it, end game. It begins as one of those shows where part of the entertainment is watching what life was like. So it, it's a period prestige series. Like, like any other drama that you would see out there, it just, also is a horror. And it, it, on the horror lover level, it's graphic. Yes, it, it is. It gets, like, it's one of those, like, it feels like a dad show, you know, if you will, except for occasionally it's so graphic, it's like, oh, shit, turn your head Although away, Although it, it's occasional enough that, like, half of what I've seen, I watched over one day when my son took a really long nap. <laughs> and... My mom and dad were there, and I sat there doing laundry with my mom, and we watched like four episodes in a row and got to them chopping off frostbitten toes. And my mom, <laughs> that my mom had a problem with. But aside from that, like she asked me what it was called so she could check it out on her own. Huh? So clearly, you can have an older audience who will still appreciate that uh, Louis Lamour or uh, yeah, whatever similar. the. Interesting the Master Commander series is. Yeah, like, yeah. If you're into Patrick that kind of stuff, something. Patrick something. You're still going to enjoy this. Just know that 
it's like that story, but a horror yeah. show. So uh, the bonus features here is like a slight, a very small overview look at the characters, a very short piece that looks outlines of the plot, and then an interview with Ridley Scott, who was the executive producer here for like two and a half minutes uh, talking about it. Like, there's not a lot of bonus features. Uh, I'll be curious to see what they do next. Uh, like, uh, like, I mean, they're going to go on with more shows that are sort of have that same feel, like classy period piece, like horror, but based on real events. Thing. So the, the, they've come out and said the second season is going to be about, uh, the Japanese internment camps, right? which like, I, I'm both disappointed because I really wanted them to do a lot of like other of the Dan Simmons horror stuff, mm-hmm. which I was intrigued with, but I have to admit with how seriously they took this environment, if they do the Japanese internment, but really do go, no, 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 this is a whore. There is some spooky shit going on. This isn't just humans being terrible to other humans. Yeah. Uh, I'll give it a shot. I'm excited about it. As long that. as they don't go. I love the idea of a prestige I, horror show. I just show. don't want them to go full American Horror Story, which I love that show, but like, I don't want to turn like suddenly there's a girl with long black hair in front of her face and like, you know, no, no. a cursed I, videotape or something. I think it's only going to work <laughs> if they maintain the feel of this, which is like, yeah. you know, this is a historical horror. We're treating the history part very uh, faithfully as we can. And so it, it appeals to both an older audience in that regard. But also, it's got some cool, freaky shit going on that's, like, one aspect is supernatural, and that's it. Well, our next film, Bram Stoker's Shadow Builder, which I know you're, like, already rolling your eyes. This is 1998, although it uh, it really feels like this was 1988, just saying. If this was a 1988 film, I would be much more impressed with it. I would, I'd be like, damn, this came out in the 80s? (laughs) But then it comes out in the 90s, you're like, oh, well, that's not as impressive. But... Michael Rooker is a badass two-gun-toting priest hunting the devil. Okay, now you're interested. Now you're like, wait, what? Michael Rooker? Really? Well, of course you're interested. That sounds amazing. Okay, this isn't amazing, but it's a lot better than a film titled Bram Stoker's Shadow Builder probably has any right to be. I ended up watching this as a prequel to the Exorcist TV series because Michael Rooker in this, so he's basically a fixer for the Catholic church. He goes into any locations where weird shit's happening. They can't explain it. And he tries to, okay, is something happening? And also let me resolve this. So basically he's a priest with two guns who forms exorcists and Exorcism. That should sorry, exorcisms. That should be all you need to hear because it it's a good movie. Now here's the bad part: it has the worst effects you may have ever seen. But that's the thing, though. I was like, if this had come out in 1988, I would have been like, oh, these are really good effects yes, for 1988. But it didn't. But it came out in 1998, and you're like, wow. Yeah. I was watching this in the impression it was an 80s film, and that- so I feel like I was a lot more forgiving of it on some level because of that. But that being said, the effects aren't really the important thing going it's not. on here. It, it, they're you know? only an issue in the first half. Yeah. Once you get into the second half and the villain kind of outs themselves, they become a lot less of an issue. There's still kind of a unique effect with some of the the apparitions that the villain creates. Yeah, though, and we haven't even said. Yeah, the villain we, in question is a demon that has been summoned into the world by a cult that I mean, he immediately kills because his whole thing is I have to kill lots of people and eat souls 
and gradually turn more from smoke apparition to more of a solid, flat out, like physical form demon. And then I'll be able to do the thing ultimately, which leads to the end of the world, like uh, revelations and all that, which involves a, a small town, uh, a small child in the local town, as it yeah. generally and does. You know I what guess. I liked? They went there. Uh, they did it like, uh, shit. Uh, so basically, the world does go to an end. It feels like watching um, that old vampire movie where the lady was naked halfway through, where it suddenly becomes an end of the world movie. Uh-huh. That's what this is, and I was really actually entertained that like, no, the town starts going insane. You know what this People is? Start showing up and trying to kill. Despite them. ostensibly being based on a Bram Stoker short story, which apparently, at the loosest possible sense. This is like a Stephen King movie that we never saw. Yeah, it is. It totally has all those aspects to it. It has a wonderful performance as Tony Todd as the local town, very un-Tony Todd role to play. He plays the local town crazy guy, but who's not creepy. He's just funny. He's, he, he's the eccentric helper. Yeah, he's like the like Rastafarian guy who's like obsessed with like lighting. So his whole house is filled with like he's trying to create this super elaborate light thing, which of course the movie's called you know Shadow Builder. Yeah, and yeah. whole deal is his one weakness is bright lights so obviously that comes into at some point but Tony Todd is absolutely fucking having eating this up he's having Quite a possibly ride. his best role it's a <laughs> lot of fun watching him in this and it's just like I said it's just so I mean let's not talk shit about Candyman okay come on no, Candyman no. is his Candyman. best role you're, you're right yeah. you're right wait did we just say it twice or three times twice, twice. okay we're safe uh, no I and won't no say mirror. Candyman again there's no mirror here fuck <laughs> um and then Michael Rooker is also having a great Michael time. Michael Rooker is always good. He, he's one of those guys who didn't get the career that he deserved. I don't think I've ever seen a bad Michael Rooker performance. Oh, I, I've seen bad Michael Rooker films, but not performance. Yeah, exactly. I've seen yeah. bad movies, but he's always been Dude, good. he's a, a Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, dude. Yeah, Have you ever seen, seen that? It. It's really good. I, I will say, though, there was one decision they made that kind of drove me crazy. Hmm. The villain speaks a lot. There are no subtitles on this movie, and they do this weird audio effect when the villain speaks that effectively meant that in the entire movie, I did not understand a single line of dialogue the villain said. And I was watching this with my dad, and there were three or four times where I turned and just paused. It was like, do you... Can you tell me what he said? Because he just spoke for two minutes straight. I was like, yeah, no, I can't hear a word like, either. Something, something, yeah. so like, evil something. If you are in any way hard of hearing or you have, like, if you were the well, one of those people who had a hard time understanding Bane and Batman, yeah. you will not hear anything the bad guy I mean, says. Fortunately, I, I felt like later on you could understand him once he got more human. You could understand him. But, like, I don't know. I Like, I didn't really have as big a problem with that. I was like, because he didn't honestly say a lot to be fair well that's good i'm yeah. glad that i didn't miss he, he has a few pithy one-liners here and there in the second half where he's like no oh, you think you'll resist me okay cool i did not know so that's good uh, <laughs> uh there's this is mvd which has been putting out both good and bad shit lately this is one of the ones i genuinely recommend this i feel like this is like a little kind of hidden like like C grade horror movie gem that I, like, I, is surprisingly entertaining. I actually second everything you just said. Yeah, this is totally worth checking out. I had a lot of fun with this. Yeah, I did too. Like especially if you like like eighties and nineties Stephen King movies, 
this feels like it fits right in there. I really was not expecting this to be good going in. This was a super pleasant surprise. Oh, no. I went into it. I admit, maybe it was lowered expectations, but I walked into it like, ugh. And then, like, right from the beginning, you're like, Michael Rooker sporting two six guns. I'm like, maybe this isn't going to be as bad as I thought it was. Uh, There is a 33 and a half minute making of, believe it or not, which is a pretty well done supplement. There's 13 and a half minutes on the visual effects. Uh, there is five minutes uh, looking at the young star, Kevin Zegers of the film, uh, audio commentary from the director. I mean, much more attention than anyone involved in this film ever thought this film would ever get. And there you go. Shadow Builder, a solid addition to any horror fans. Maybe not library, but at the very least, like watching experience. Yeah, like I, I don't know that I would say buy it, but check it out. Yeah. Uh, our last film. Ugh. Yeah, I'm sorry. Is... It just, you know, I hate this film more almost because it's from such a great director like Terry Gilliam, who I think has made some of my favorite movies of all time. And and I... It's so called all, Tideland. Tideland. We're talking about Tideland. And the story behind it, I love. I'm not, not its story, but... Like, the idea that he was making uh, Brothers Grimm and had an issue with money or he had to take a hiatus for, like, six months. And so he just went, fuck it, and they made this movie. Like, that's a cool story. It's fun to talk about. And, and based remember, on a, a popular a kind of underground novel. Yeah, like, I remember when this came out, it was hugely controversial. Oh, yeah. You either adored it or you Despised I, I, it, which more people hated it than I knew than liked it. I saw it at Fantastic Fest. I came out like, like actively feeling nauseous. Yeah, I never got to see it. Uh, it was like I always wanted to. I even bought it for three bucks from Netflix back when they sold DVDs, but never watched it. And then you gave it to me, Chris. I hate you. I well, you had to get it out of the way, right? Um, it stars Jodell Ferdland, who lately has gone on to a bunch of shit. She was in Cabin in the Woods, uh, uh, Paranorman. She's on the she was on the show Dark Matter. If you watch that, which you should have, and you didn't, and it got canceled because of you assholes. But she, <laughs> <laughs> God damn it! She was in Kingdom Holy Hospital, shit, the... the Twilight Saga. She's one of those people who went on to big things, and Wait, this was her Dark big matter, first role. Was she the young half? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. She was great, right? She was great. I didn't ever realize that was her. Yeah, and she she's definitely the analog for Kaylee and Firefly yeah. on that show. But anyway, uh she was very young when she was in this film. So I have to point out that when you start this movie, it begins with this grimy, creepy black and white footage of Terry Gilliam kind of going, Look, this is the frame of mind you have to be in to watch this movie. And he gives one and of those you, th- you have to watch it as a child and view things with I, innocence. I, I and I will admit things. Like, I like the the idea behind this movie, which is about a innocent, sweet X number of years old, maybe twelve. She's no, about eleven 10, or twelve, eight, maybe. nine, maybe. I don't know. She's young, and so she lives with junky parents. Her uh, Jeff mom, Bridges. Her mom is Jennifer Tilly, who I think dies five minutes into the movie. Almost immediately. Yeah. One of the most painful ODs I've ever seen on screen, which ODs suck, so that makes sense. And as far then her as dad, told. Jeff Bridges, is a heroin-addicted musician who basically, they go on the run because they're afraid that they're going to get in trouble for the dead mom. Yeah. And shack up in an abandoned house Him. that he says is his mother's. Right. Which I doubt. And 
and I feel like I can say this too because it's in the very beginning. And then Jeff Bridges dies like two minutes later. So yeah. like 15 of minutes into this movie, she's on her own in an abandoned house in the middle of nowhere with no food, no water. And she has a magical realism adventure. Well, sort of. Sort of. I mean, she's having a, a, a child's vision, a child's version of trying to find fantasy and light inside of what's a really fucked up situation. Yeah. There's like a neighbor lives nearby in a, like, in a really fucked up burnout old house played by Janet, the great Janet McTeer, uh, who lives with her, I don't even know what the right word Brother? is. Se- no, I think it's her son, but severely mentally disabled. Because she says she's not his mom and not his wife. Is she not? Maybe it is her brother. I don't know. But severely mentally disabled adult. Yeah, like uh, he, he was somebody who was cognitively there, but then he had a really intense head injury. Yeah. And he played has by, an issue with his cognitive process. Uh, Brendan Fletcher, who was in Freddy vs. Uh, Jason, Rampage, The Pacific, Rogue, um, Smallville, a whole bunch of... He's one of those guys you see him, and you're like, and oh, you know, I recognize he, that guy. Like, so, if you take all the parts about this movie, the actors all do a decent job. I, I like... The way Terry Gilliam shoots it, it's well shot. That there's this recurring thing with these doll heads that the main actress plays with other fingers. Yeah. And he shoots them in these fantasy sequences in this really garish, fish-eyed lens that makes them appear huge. But so this is the movie that to me proves Roger Ebert's statement: uh, a movie is not what it's about; it's how it's about what it's about. Is false in some cases. Okay, yeah. Acting is great. The directing is great. It's a idea which, at its heart, a, an innocent child going through a fucked up scenario. I like that idea, but oh my god, this movie is so horrible and unrelentingly bleak from second one. And every single step in this movie gets more and more and more and more messed up with absolutely no break in it. I hated this movie. And Gilliam, both in his intro, and by the way, I just wanted to say, I hate it when they come after the fact and film the intro, like, I know you guys didn't like this movie, but this is why you're all wrong. Yeah. It drives me crazy every single time. Like, dude, come on. Like, either, there's obviously some people who like it, but don't come out with a sort of like, fuck you guys, this movie's good. You just looked at it wrong. I I, I get that viewpoint. It doesn't make this any more palatable or enjoyable. I I think, like, Usually with Gilliam, more is more. This is the case, as it were, like excess. Yeah. This is the case in which more is less. He wanted to make a Lewis Carroll, a really dark Lewis Carroll movie. And what he ends up with is a story that no matter what he's trying to do to cover it up, this is a disgusting story of abuse and neglect and, like, even arguably pedophilia. Yeah. Like... That is just no fun to watch. I mean, what are we supposed to be connecting with here? Yeah. Like, it's a very Gilliam movie. You watch it and you will not deny for a second, like, this is a Gil- Terry Gilliam movie. There's no question. You would never have... If you watch this 15 minutes in, you've been like, did Terry Gilliam do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously. But it is just a huge miscalculation. Yeah. On so many levels. It, it, and it's a shame because this could have been great. 
Well, yeah, and, and I always want Gillian movies to be great. Well, yeah, he's a he's the, the, kind this of a is genius. Officially, the only time I've walked away from a Gillian movie, going, I never want to watch that again. No, I, 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 it took everything in me to watch this again. I rewatched this on Blu-ray. It's like it's been years. I saw this at Fantastic Fest. I hated it, but it's Gilliam. I'm going to give it another shot. Nope. But this is out from Arrow, and it does have its supporters. I know people who really enjoy this film. Just not one of them. So if you're one of those people and you're like, I'm looking forward to hearing if this is worth my time for buying this new Arrow edition, which Arrow has kind of the become the new criterion for the. The super cult film. Yeah, they're criterion for genre. Yeah. Uh, there's a commentary by Gilliam and uh, Tony Grissoni, who I believe is one of the writers. Uh, Getting Gilliam is a 2005 documentary on Gilliam and the making of it by Vincent Natale, of all people, who made this. I was like, really? Um, the making of Tideland, a five and a half minute EPK. There's a three minute filming green screen, which looks at the F- FX and compositing work. There's uh, six minutes of deleted scenes. There's a 14 and a half minute interview with Terry Gilliam, a nine and a half minute with Jeremy Thomas, and a five minute interview with Jeff Bridges, Jodell Furland, and Jennifer Tilly. There's some 20 and a half minutes of B-roll footage. I always hate it when it says that because I'm always like, so basically you did nothing but take the B-roll footage and just yeah, cause shit it on. I, I'm this. sorry, but bloopers is one thing. Deleted yeah. scenes is one thing. B-roll footage is literally second unit of just some random shit happening. Yeah, it's just like I get it. <clears throat> if it's something like an all-time cult classic that everyone agrees is amazing, or even like something like maybe not everyone agrees is like Evil Dead, and you're like, I would watch any second of film they actually shot during this period. Yeah, no, I, but Tideland. I don't care about B-roll ever. Yeah. And there's gallery, two minutes of gallery stuff, the trailer, and the aforementioned introduction by Terry Gilliam, which, like I said, just irritated me. Gilliam is kind of becoming a contentious figure of late of things. He's one of those guys like, Terry, just shut up. Well, Stop look, talking. Here's the thing. <laughs> Gilliam has always been kind of a prick. It's just that he makes really interesting movies, usually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so he, he's one of those, you separate the art from the artist kind of people. You do the best you can. Yeah. I mean, he's not so volatile, the things he said, that I'm like, fuck that guy and everything he's ever done. But, like, he, like at he, the same time, I'm like, please stop. He's just a prick. He's not a racist or, no. like, a homophobe. He, he's generally decent. He's just kind of a bit of an asshole. <laughs> I get that. Uh, you're never going to stop me from enjoying 12 Monkeys or Brazil. Yeah. Or, uh, and actually, 12 Monkeys is the last... That and Baron von Munchausen... I love that, man. ...are the only two movies of his I haven't seen now. <gasps> You've never seen either one? They're all... You're and, into first And, and I own 12 Monkeys. I've just never actually sat down Why and watched it. Why have you not it. watched it? Just, it's, just never happened. It's a masterpiece. I know. I know. And, and Baron Munchausen is generally thought of as not one of his better films, but I respectfully... Disagree. Humorously enough, because I'm pretentious, I haven't seen 12 Monkeys, but I've seen the photo essay 45-minute film La Jete. it's based on. <laughs> La Jete. I've seen it, too. <laughs> Although, no, that's not true. I didn't. I didn't actually watch it. I was at a store. There was a store that used to be an art bookstore in downtown Austin that had a photo book version of it. <laughs> And I just read that. No, no. I, I watched it in film class <laughs> in an audience of 200 people. Wow. <laughs> You are pretentious. I am. I love you for that. <laughs> uh, I'm pretentious too. It's fine. 
Uh, that's it for Digital Noise, uh, episode 194. We're getting towards the 200th episode. I don't know Woo. what to do. I feel like I should go to Brian Salisbury's house and with a gun and go, oh, you're watching these movies. Yeah, you're, you're coming, coming back. back. You're coming back. <laughs> it's 200th episode, motherfucker. He's not going to give a Have shit. us all on there. Do, do like a six-part show with oh, each of the <laughs> You guys all kill me. We had that one show where we did do like three of us sitting in the room at the same time and everyone's like, why am I here? <laughs> anyway, uh, that's it. Thanks for listening, you guys. <laughs>